if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 now. Start there. Luke chapter 3, please. Uh, We've had the uh, privilege of studying through the Gospel of Luke in the youth group, ABS Hour, uh, Adolescent Bible Study, that's what that stands for, Adolescent Bible Study. Um, uh, So that's been a lot of fun, and... uh, uh, we're getting we're getting pretty uh, pretty far through it, which I'm really thankful for, and so we're going to look at this morning. I would like to look at, like I told you before, the temptation of Jesus Christ. So it's kind of kind of want to do a follow up to um, what Brent has been preaching on. He, he the last two weeks he spent some time in Luke, spent some time in Matthew, and um, talked about the incarnation, talked about the coming of Christ, and the birth narrative. And the appearing of angels to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist, and then the appearing of an angel to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, and um, in the Gospel of Luke, we looked at genealogy last week a little bit, and that was pretty fun. We'll do that a little bit this morning as well in the Gospel of Luke. And as we consider looking into this next year, you think of new things happening in the new year, we look back on this past year, 2017, look towards 2018. Sometimes we undertake new endeavors. We think, okay, how can I better this year than last year? Fine. Uh, We'd make New Year's resolutions, and we all joke about how well those go. Well, I want to take a look this morning at the temptation of Christ, as it is the preparation of Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 23 of chapter 3. Jesus, when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age. Then, Luke enters into a genealogy. Genealogy that that goes all the way back to Adam. Look at the very end of chapter 3, in verse 38. The son of Adam, the son of God. And then right from there, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. So right before the temptation, though, I want you to see two very important theological points that come out of this text, that Luke draws out of the text for us. Two very important theological points that Luke is making here. He makes these two points. Jesus is God. You ever say that to my kids? If you ever say, Jesus is, they should respond, God. Okay, they should say that. Jesus is God. But also, Jesus is man. Jesus is the ultimate God-man. He is the God-man. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. The Word became flesh. That's the incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that. And Luke makes this point through the baptism narrative and through a genealogy. So look, just go back a couple of verses from where we just were in Luke chapter 3. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. This is John the Baptist. He has started his ministry John the Baptist's ministry was what? Preparing the, ministry, preparing the way for Christ. Preparing the way of the Lord. He goes before Jesus to announce the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus, John starts his ministry in, John chap, in Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist does. And we get to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and this is what the text says. Now when all the people were being baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, 
and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So, um, Jesus' first point is that, um, Jesus, uh, Luke's first point here in this, in, in, uh, in this narrative is that Jesus is God. The baptism shows that Jesus is God. When, when the heavens open up and start talking to you, you had better listen up. You are my beloved son, the father says. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is God, but Jesus is also man, and this is expressed in the genealogy. In verses, three, in verses 23 through 38, which I will not read to you. You're welcome. Read that on your own. Um, Jesus is man. Jesus is connected to humanity in this genealogy. When he begins his ministry, look at verse 23. When Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. All the way down to the son of Adam. Notice that Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham. Good job, class. Decent job, decent job. (laughs) His genealogy goes all the way back to Abraham, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Why does he do that? I think the fact that the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, I think he does this for two reasons here. A couple of reasons. Here's two of them. Um, One, mainly to show that Jesus is connected to the human race. Jesus is not only God, he is also man, and a qualified man at that. We looked at that when we saw that uh, last week when we looked at the genealogy uh, in Matthew, that he is actually a qualified man. Verse, uh, the, the second thing there, the second reason, I think, is that the temptations to follow are going to be in contrast to the temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we'll see this as we work through the text together, how these things are contrasted. So, Let's look at our text this morning in Luke chapter 4. And let's read one, verse 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when, he, when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, what does that remind you of? Time out. What does that remind you of? The baptism, the heavens opened up and said, you are my beloved son, with you my well pleased. Okay, so if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse five, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hand, 
on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's look at these together. Look back at verse one. It's interesting to note that right before Jesus begins his ministry, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's about to begin his ministry. We saw that in verse 23 of chapter three. And we're gonna see him begin his ministry in verses 14 and 15 and 16 and following. Verse 16 and following, he's gonna explain what his ministry is all about. Verse 14 and 15, and Jesus returned to the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He begins to Before that, it's interesting to note that he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is the second time in the scripture where someone goes one-on-one being tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit leads him. Jesus, it, it's, Jesus demonstrates that he is submitted to the Holy Spirit. He is submitted to the Holy Spirit's guiding and to the Holy Spirit's control. He is obeying the Holy Spirit. He is going to be the ultimate example for us of what a spiritual person is. A person guided by the Holy Spirit. Here's our ultimate example. Notice that the Holy Spirit is mentioned twice. Did you see that? Mentioned twice there? He's full of the Holy Spirit and he's led by the Holy Spirit. The emphasis, I think, is this. This time in the wilderness is a result of God's leading. God brings him through this. God isn't responsible for the temptations, but he does allow temptations to happen. Just so you know, God is going to allow trials and temptations to come into your life. Maybe you see this as you look back in 2017. Maybe 2017 was a difficult year. And maybe as you look back, there were significant trials. I know many of you have faced significant trials in 2017 with significant temptations to distrust, with significant temptations towards lack of faith, temptations towards sin. I know many people, many of us have faced difficulty throughout this past year. We just know that God has allowed these things to even happen to Christ, to, to allow Christ to go through temptation, led him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And he has done so for a purpose. He has done these things for a purpose in your life, to prove to you who you are and to prove it to God. So, Jesus is there for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he didn't eat anything. Now look, I'm, I am uh, prone to fall, into tem- fall to temptation when I am hungry. Uh, would you agree that maybe this is a, all the guys are like, yeah, totally. So may- maybe um, we're more prone because I haven't eaten in four hours, okay? Let alone fasting for 40 days. Also notice, he was tempted for 40 days. Um, So, um, 
for some reason, I, I had always thought that he was only given like these three temptations from the devil after he had fasted and been in the wilderness for a while. But the text says here, look here in um, uh, verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now, the three temptations by the devil would have been significant enough. But it seems pretty clear in verse 2, no matter where you put the phrase in the original language, the, that Jesus was being tempted by the devil for 40 days. This had to be excruciating. Terrible. Difficult. Now connect that back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they were tempted one time. In one moment. In a paradise. Not in a wilderness. And they had everything to eat. Except for one tree. Will Jesus be the faithful son of God? Will he be the faithful one? Then when the 40 days had ended, he was hungry. And this leads us right into these final three temptations before Jesus goes into his ministry. Here's how he is tempted. Look at the first one. The first temptation. Look at verses three and four. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What? What's the temptation here? You ever thought about that? What is the temptation here? One of the commentators asked that question, like the very beginning of his, his comments. It's like, that's a really good question. What is the temptation? He's hungry. He needs bread. The devil's like, there's rocks right there that you know how to turn to bread. Turn that to bread and eat it. What is the temptation? Um, can't, can't he go ahead and feed himself? Doesn't he have the right to feed himself? The 40 days is over, it says. Why not make these stones turn to bread so he can eat? Well, the temptation is not just about the food. Look at Jesus' response. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's not just about the bread. This comes from a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And some of your translations uh, will, will finish that section of the text in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Matthew does as well in his account of this. And the rest of that verse says, so the verse says, man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I think that is understood, even if you don't have it in your particular text, you don't think it maybe, maybe was an addition later, that is understood, that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus says, I'm not going to eat bread, but more importantly, I'm not going to do anything without any reference to the Father. God has led him into the wilderness, and he will bring him out. He will not follow the suggestions of the devil. Jesus is not going to act independently from God. So he's coming out of the wilderness, picture this, he's coming out of the wilderness, and he's hungry, and he interacts with the devil, and the devil says, just turn these, into, turn these stones into bread and eat. He is not going to act without reference to the Father. He will not act independently. He is, he is submissive to the Father, to the Holy Spirit's leading. He, may, he will make no decisions without reference to God. Would your life look like this? 
Are you so connected to God that for you to make a decision on anything or to give counsel on anything, there will always be reference to what God would have for you to do? Whether you eat or you drink, you glorify the Father. I tell the teens this um, about having friends, about having Christian friends. So I say, if it's awkward to talk about Jesus with your friends, then you have really shallow friendships. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to work through life together, and there's, there's not discussion as to what God would have for you, or to what God would have for your friend, or parents, what God would have for your son or your daughter, if you cannot have that conversation about what God would want, And what kind of relationship is that? Shallow at best. The relationship is built on something superficial, maybe something temporary. Hey, we both like sports, so we're friends. We both like this, so we're friends. And we talk about that. But if it's awkward to talk about Christ with your friends, you have a really shallow friendship. Here, Jesus won't feed himself without reference to the Father. He is our ultimate example of a spiritual person, Jesus is. And he is not living independently of the Father. And neither should we in our own personal lives or in our relationships with others. So the first temptation is don't act independently of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. Speak to him and let him speak to you. And you're going to notice, maybe you did notice, how does Jesus respond to each, each of the temptations? Where does he go? He goes to the word. He goes to the scriptures. So, do you know the scriptures? How well do we know the word of God? Are you spending time daily in the word? Reading the word? Meditating on the word? Memorizing the word? There's actually really cool apps on your phone that somebody gifted me, that you can use to memorize the word of God, to read the word of God for free on your phone whenever you want. Do you know the word? What is your Bible reading plan right now? Is it just, man, I hope I wake up early enough, magically, so I can read something as I turn to whatever, or do you have a plan? You're reading large chunks of scripture at a time. You're reading small chunks. What are you, what are you, are you studying hard? Are you taking the time to study hard a particular text? Are you reading longer texts of scripture? Do you have a Bible reading plan? If you, if you are looking for a Bible reading plan, maybe to read the Bible through in a year or read the Bible through in two years or read the Bible through in two months or whatever, there are plans out there. I can help you find some. I have plenty of them, actually, that I've used with teens and given to teens. And, um, and others as well. Are, are you reading the scriptures? Is it an active part of your life? But also memorizing. Memorizing so that when temptation comes, where does your mind go? Your mind goes to the word and what the word says about the truth about greed. About money. What's the truth about lust, sexual sin? What's the truth about that? Your mind goes to the scriptures. 
So are you memorizing? Do you know where to look, where to go, to study, to, to look hard, to memorize the scripture so that when temptation comes, you know exactly how to respond. You know exactly what words to bring to mind. You are renewing your mind to be like God's. You'll see that Jesus is always responding with the word when he's tempted here. Now let's look at the second temptation. And he took him to Jerusalem. Um, no, sorry, verse five, skip to one. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. I think it's interesting that he's offering authority over everything when he actually knows he doesn't have authority over everything. It's really interesting to me. He does have some power, a lot of power, and authority in a lot of people's lives, right? Satan has much authority on this earth. Does he have ultimate authority? Absolutely not. Does he have authority? Yes. He's considered, he's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called a roaring lion seeking to devour people. It's pretty intense, I'd say. Satan, I heard, um, my Bible teacher in high school used to say, Satan is behind every false religion. He's behind every false religion. Might be kind and nice, but they're deceiving people away from the true God. He has much influence on this earth, and we're warned about it, especially in texts like we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 6. Warned about his power. Does he have the ultimate authority? No, of course he does not. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to come knock on your door, and they're going to tell you that Satan is in charge of the earth. Anybody ever had that happen to you? Satan's in charge. That happened to me one time, and as I, as I decided to respond to them, they were slowly backing away with a tract. Here you go, why don't you read this? Like, reaching farther and farther. Like, okay, thanks. Um, they didn't want to interact with that as I brought up text, because remember, he had to ask jo God's permission to get to Job, and throughout the Gospels, you see that demons recognize Jesus' power and authority, and then he exercises that authority over these fallen angels, God is the one who rules and reigns ultimately over all. The temptation is that if Jesus would give Satan his worship, if he would give him his heart and bow down to Satan, Satan would let Jesus rule everything. Jesus knows the time's coming. All Jesus needed to do, according to Satan, is you just need to renounce his allegiance to the Father you love everything. Are you ever tempted this way? Are we ever tempted this way? Are we ever tempted to pretend that we're not a follower of Jesus, to renounce the Christian name because we fear man? What if a boss was to give you a raise or a promotion or a bonus if you just fudged the numbers a little bit? I mean, I would just do this or that and check me out. Got a little bonus. It's for the kids, it's for the family. I know a teacher who has offered bonuses if a certain number of his students pass. If he gives the bonus, if he gives bonus points and extra credit for those students who didn't actually learn anything or do any homework all semester, he gets a bonus. 
Thankfully, he chose to be honest. He chose to remain faithful to the Lord, to worship and serve the Lord alone. And not to renounce his faith. Notice Jesus' response in verse 8. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Do you have other gods that you are tempted to serve? Do you have other gods that you are tempted to bow down to, to worship, to serve? For temporary power or temporary pleasure, it is never a substitute for worshiping God. The third temptation in verse 9 And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, wait, wait, Satan is about to quote the Bible. And it sounds like, has God not said? Didn't God actually say this about this situation? Adam and Eve. And look what, look what Satan says. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. True statements. They're from the Bible. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. That's his response. Back to the scriptures. He says, you shall not put the Lord to the, your, the Lord your God to the test. So the devil, um, um, the, the devil has been uh, bested by the scriptures twice. So this time, he brings two scriptures to the table. The, the, takes, the devil takes Jesus to a high point in Jerusalem. Um, are you afraid of heights? Uh, I am too, but I love getting scared. That's what I like to tell people. Been to the Grand Canyon. I have a relative of mine, my grandfather. Um, uh, he's going to kill me. He's going to listen to this. He's going to kill me. But uh, he, he turned 92 the day my son was born, December 2nd. And uh, he's a World War II vet, and he was a paratrooper. He wasn't sure what a paratrooper was, and he's afraid of heights. So he said, I never jumped out of one plane. It's like, well, that's kind of nice. It's like, they pushed me every time. One of my favorite stories from him. <laughs> of course, he's going to watch this and email me, but I love you, Grandpa. Okay. He takes, devil takes Jesus to this high point, and, and um, it's really interesting, the, the pinnacle of the temple. It may be a reference to the temple's southeast corner, which looked over a cliff in the Kidron Valley, creating a drop of some 450 feet. Josephus, a historian at the time, mentions that the heights made people who peered over its edge dizzy. You ever felt that way? Looked over an edge at some point, the Grand Canyon, or a mountain in Virginia, something like that. You look over an edge, you're like, okay, I should step back. Um, notice the devil knows the scriptures when he tempts Christ. He, he, has, he is offering the scriptures to Jesus, saying this is, this is what God has said. He will protect you. Um, so what's the temptation here? Jesus could totally do that, and God would protect him. He could jump off of that, and God would protect him. But... This is a test of God's faithfulness. If he does that, he's saying, I'm not really sure. There, there's, a, there's an assumption that I'm not really sure if he's, gonna, if he's going to save me or not, so he better show me. 
It's really a test of God's care and of Jesus' trust of God. It's presumptuous. Bach says this, the commentator says this, if it, uh, um, it says, in effect, I do not think you will take care of me as son. So, to be sure, I'm going to, uh, to place, for to be sure, I'm going to place you in a situation where you must take care of me now and on my terms. Have you heard this one? Just let go and let God. Right? No. Now, I understand the sentiment sometimes behind this statement, let go and let God, but don't simply renounce your responsibility. Don't be lazy with the commands that God has given you and then just hope that God will work it out. Don't think, I'll just do nothing and God will bless me because he loves me so much. Let go and let God. The problem with that phrase is that it can be a temptation for laziness, but it's also presumptuous. I'm a child of God, so he owes me. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Are you tempted towards this sin? Where are you tempted to not trust God with what he says and obey his commands? Where are you tempted not to follow God's commands? With his commandments to serve others, to forgive others, to be honest with others, to love and cherish your wife, to submit to your husband, to obey your parents, to name a few, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do the will of the Father. Trust him, follow him, love him, and worship him alone. Follow him. Now look with me in verse 13 for this final statement. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Kind of an ominous ending to this, right? And that time will come. That time will come towards the end of the Gospel of Luke. After the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Table, after that, Satan will enter one of the twelve. He will win over an insider, one of Jesus' closest friends. He wins him over, and he takes the opportunity to bring Jesus down. The innocent lamb would be arrested, brought before rulers, found to be innocent, except that he claimed to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. The crowds who were once on his side would cry out for his crucifixion. He would be mocked, beaten, whipped, a crown of thorns shoved in his head, and then he would be nailed to a cross, hung to die. And that's not the worst part. He would bear the wrath of God. He bears the wrath of God for you bears the wrath of God for me. The wrath that is due us, the anger towards sin that is due us, he lays it on his son. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed.
Isaiah 53.5. The righteous one who overcame every temptation has been slain so that we may receive his righteousness. We get his righteousness. After three days, he rose from the grave, giving us victory over sin, death, and hell. And now, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you have not decided to follow Jesus, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ, choose today to be a follower of Jesus. He has laid down his life for you to bear the wrath of God for you. Believe in him and his teaching. Lay aside the other things, the other gods in your life that you are tempted to follow. Lay them aside. Live for him alone. Serve God alone. Turn from sin and decide to follow Christ. Follow Christ with your whole life. Pursue Christ. Love Christ above all. That's why we're here today. And that's why we gather together around the Lord's table. To remember what Christ has done for us and to honor him and to praise him. And if we do so choose to follow Jesus, we get our sins removed and we are given the righteousness of Christ. This righteous and holy Christ, the sacrificial lamb, the innocent lamb, has been slain for our sins on the cross. Let us pray together. Dear God, we're so grateful that we have a high priest who has endured temptations. We have a high priest who can sympathize, who was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Hebrews tells us. We're thankful that we have a Messiah, a Savior, a Lord, who would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we may receive his righteousness if we put our faith and trust in him. So I ask today that you would draw people to yourself. I would ask that if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their faith in you, that they would choose today to follow you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would place their faith in you, renouncing all other gods, all other sins, and decide to be a follower of Jesus. Help us to worship you and you alone. So God, as believers, as followers of you, we confess that we fall to these same kinds of temptations often. We sin by making gods out of temporary things, temporal things here on this earth. And we ask that you would forgive us of worshiping other gods, of not fully trusting you in situations, with, with, with not fully seeking your will for our lives. As we make decisions, we interact with each other, we want you to work. And we want to live for you. 
So help us to become more and more like Christ, our Savior, humbly submitting ourselves to the Father and trusting in you. Give us strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.